uh, in 2 Timothy, we're in that first chapter, we're going to begin with the 11th verse. Reminds you, Paul is writing this letter, he's, he's facing death from a prison in Rome. Um, it's probably about 65 AD. He and Peter are going to die close together. And Paul writes to Timothy, who's at Ephesus. He has some things, some words for that church at Ephesus. But then he's going to tell Timothy, come on, I need you, brother. And, and, and this is the most moving. I think of all of Paul's letters, this is probably my favorite. Because, especially as I've gotten older, I used to not be in, but as I've gotten older, you know, I just, I understand. You know, not, you know, not to die in prison, but your, your ministry, his life is winding, things are over, coming to an end. And, and he, what he's sharing with Timothy is really personal. And, I, and, and you see that in, in 2 Timothy. And I think it's some really cool stuff. And, and you get to the end, and he said, you know, everybody's gone. Demas has left me. Luke's here. Go get John Mark, who once had deserted Paul, but now is tight with Paul. And he said, you come on. And I want you guys here. And, and the words that he shares with Timothy. Uh, when I was a young pastor, and um, <laughs> that was a long time ago. When I was a young pastor, you know, you read those, and it says, yeah, you know, preach the word in season, all that stuff in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and all these things. And that no one looked down on you and all that stuff. But really, it's when you get older that you appreciate the words of Timothy, I think. So it really strikes home. We, we kind of left off, you know, mid, actually in the middle of a sentence at the end of verse 10. He's talking about the gospel and uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I, that I always try to stress about the gospel is that it is synonymous with Jesus, all right? I mean, the New Testament, it, it's the message of Jesus. It is Jesus. The gospel saves you. The, you know, all of that thing. It's, it's, it's one of those beautiful words that, that it's not that it has a lot of different meanings, but it encompasses so much. You can, it is really hard, I think, to take a word like the gospel and narrow it down. So it's one of those, what makes the Greek language so fantastic for the New Testament, there are words like the word gospel in Galeon. There are words like for salvation. There are words like for, for faith or grace. And the richness of those words, they're so broad, the word for love, agape, that, you, that it gives you so much to think about. You just can't narrow it all down in the Gospels that way. And he says, he's a preacher of the Gospel. And look what he says in verse 11 about the Gospel. For which I was appointed, a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. A preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. So, you know, he's in prison. And we're going to see just a moment that there, there are probably those who are critical of Paul in prison. Hey, if Jesus, if, you're, if Jesus was such a good deal, if the gospel was such a good deal, why are you in prison? Or maybe they think, hey, you know, the gospel's great, but you, somehow you failed because you're in prison. Now, Nero is the emperor, and Nero is about to unleash an unbelievable amount of persecution in the Roman world, and then in about mm, 20 years, less than that even, there's this cat named Domitian, and he is going to have an empire-wide system of persecution. Many people will suffer, to some degree, what Paul did. So I'm going to deal with the word apostle first. You know, he's already said he, earlier in the first verse he was an apostle. It, it is a position that no longer exists. I know there are some churches that, you know, have the position of apostle. I understand why they do that. Uh, some movements do that. Some people talk about an apostolic gift. No one alive has the apostolic gift. The apostolic gift ended when John died. The apostles were a very narrow group of people, not just the 11 guys with Jesus, but Paul, James's brother, Judah's brother, some might consider Barnabas, and maybe one or two others in that, in that group uh, that were apostles. And to be an apostle, you had to have seen the resurrected Jesus and have been commissioned or called by him. 
But what we have is the apostolic message, which is what we call the New Testament. The New Testament is what the apostles left us. The gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark wasn't an apostle, but he most likely got everything from Peter. Luke, while he wasn't an apostle, a companion of Paul, and was associated with Paul, he uh, got his information from a variety of people. So, you know, Matthew's an apostle, John was an apostle, Luke written by, I mean, Acts written by Luke, Paul, James, Jude, Peter, they wrote all that. Whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, though probably not an apostle, maybe if Barnabas wrote it, could have been. Paul probably didn't write it, but it was probably someone connected closely to Paul. And so they were just all there. And everything you see in that New Testament is the apostolic message. That's what we have. That's why the New Testament and the Old, and I get the Old also, is what we proclaim. That's why we don't preach other things. We preach the New Testament and we preach the Old. But that is the message that we preach. So he is an apostle, but he's also, he says, a herald or a preacher and a teacher. Now the word for preacher in the American Standard, so many versions may have herald, is the one who proclaims a message and proclaims it loudly. So part of his job was to proclaim the gospel. Then the word for teach is then kind of to teach the gospel. And the difference between preaching or proclaiming and teaching is that sometimes it's, it's kind of subtle. A lot of times, you know, what I do on Wednesday nights basically is teach. What I do on Sundays pretty much preach. There is a difference. My approach is different. You may not notice or see all that. I do a lot of teaching on Sunday, but basically what I do on Sundays is I preach. And I proclaim something. And I, you know, and I, and I do certain things that are different than what I do on Tuesdays. Now, sometimes on Tuesdays, I mean, Wednesdays. I probably preach some on Tuesdays, but not here. But uh, Wednesdays, I'll do a little bit of, sometimes I do start preaching a little bit. But funny, because I could go improv and go off script. Which there's not actually a script, so it's, everything's pretty much improv. But um, the difference is, when you teach, you're really trying to get across fundamental truth to educate and impart knowledge, and to move people over the course of time. When you preach, you're trying to move people immediately. On Sundays, my goal is to move people that day. That's why we have an invitation. When I teach, my goal is over the course of time to move you in that way. So kind of you look at different things in, in that way. So he's a preacher. He's an apostle. He's a teacher. And he says, for this reason... What reason? Because he's a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the gospel. I suffer these things. He says, I suffer all that he is suffering because of the gospel. I've said this many times. It is hard for us in America to understand what it means to suffer for the gospel. We just don't. And, you know, we talk about, you know, would you be willing to suffer for Jesus? And people say yes and all this stuff. But we don't even, we can't even comprehend what that means. There are places in the world that to become a Christian could be a death sentence for you, especially in Islamic countries. Your whole family can disown you. You know, in, in, in China, where Christianity is growing faster in China and India than anywhere, and, and in China, it's, it's, it's outlaw. I mean, they tolerate it, and they're there, and I get all that stuff, but basically, I mean, they persecute. It is a rough thing in most of Christian history, in most of the world today, Christians suffer simply for being a Christian. People make fun of us, and we get all, you know, kind of upset about it, you know, and, and all of those things. And I get it, because not, we're not accustomed to that. He is suffering. He's in prison. He's going to die for this faith. Notice what he says, though. I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he's able to protect what I've entrusted to him 
until that day. Oh, that sounds familiar. It's because it's part of a song <laughs> that we sing. I know whom I have believed in and persuaded. It comes from King James. Um, Mike, what's the name of it? Yeah, that's what I said. What's the name of it? <laughs> so I know. <laughs> that was a good setup. I set that up well. Thanks. Yeah, I know whom I believe. And, uh, you know, I knew that, but I just, you know, don't do as much traditional anymore as I, you know, it just slips my mind. Uh, so what Paul says is, I'm suffering. But he, these words are really powerful. I mean, they really are. He says, listen, he says, I, I'm not ashamed. Some people, the, the, the thinking is there are some people ashamed of Paul. And, and, and some people say Timothy might have been ashamed of Paul. But I just, I can't wrap my mind around the fact that Timothy could have ever been ashamed of Paul. I think he's just saying, look, Timothy, I'm not ashamed. Now, he's, I know whom I have believed, and, and the ideas whom I have believed in, or whom I have trusted. In the Greek, it's written in such a way that it speaks of a lasting, permanent trust. Many times, the word believe, which is a verb, I say this all, every time I talk about faith or, or believe, I say this. Faith is a noun, believe is a verb, same basic Greek word, it means to trust. And so oftentimes, when, when the word believe is used, if it's, if it's used in terms of directly of salvation, it's written in such a way it speaks of the permanence of that salvation. I have believed, and I keep on believing. Um, my series starting Sunday from John chapter 20, I'm going to preach for six weeks through Easter, is entitled Believe. I think eight times the word believe or unbelieve is used. I mean, it's a strong part of that, those 20, that 20th chapter, those, those verses. And so the concept of believing is foundation. He says, I'm not ashamed. I know. I have confidence in whom I have believed. And then he says this, for I am convinced that he is able to protect what I have entrusted to him until the day. The word convinced, I am confident. The word protect and entrusted are used in a little bit in verse 14. The word protect means to guard. The word entrusted means to, to, is to, to give over, to have, to have left in their hands. He's, the word for, for uh, protect is the word almost speaks of the concept of, of a deposit that has been made that's left there. He says, I have given everything to Jesus. I am confident that he can protect what I have given to him, which is his life and his ministry. He's dying for Jesus. He has confidence that Jesus will entrust or protect it uh, until that day. And the day most likely means the day in which Christ becomes. It could be the day in which he dies and goes to be with him. It's all of that. It's just the whole thing. He, in other words, everything I have, I've given to Christ in my life. And I'm in jail for him. I'm going to die for him. But I trust him with my life. And I know that because I've trusted him with my life, he guards that. And will keep guarding that. And one day, everything will be set straight. I think one of the important things about the faith, about being a follower of Christ, and we're concerned about justice and so many things, and, I, and we, look at time, we look at life temporal, we look at life as time. For God, there is no time. He just he accommodates us with time. But I think one of the things for me is, is I know that one day God will set all things right. I don't know how it's, I don't know how it's going to turn out for everything, now, I don't know what well, he's going to do this, and he's going to do that, and he's going to zap you, and he's going to make you rewarded, and, he, and all of your secret dirty sins are coming out. I, I'm not saying, I don't have any clue to all that. But one of the things that I take great confidence in is knowing that God is going to set all things straight. And I'm pretty good with that. And I, and I think if I didn't believe that, I would have a hard time following Jesus. 
If I didn't know that sometime God is going to make everything turn out exactly the way it needs to turn out for his glory and honor as a holy God, I'd have a hard time trusting him. But he is. And there's great comfort in that. And so Paul understands that. And he goes on to say, Timothy, hold on to the example of sound words which you've heard from me, the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Timothy, hold on tightly. Hold on to that. Um, there's a song that I, I liked from my younger days, 38 Special Things, that hold on loosely, don't let it go. And I always kind of picture, hold on, man, just hold on. Don't let go of it. You got to hold, hold on to what the Lord has given us, Timothy. Don't let go of that, man. Hold, hold on and know that it's going to be okay. Because you, you've got to have that confidence. Listen to the example that I've set. The example of my words you have heard from me. In the process, or in the realm of both the faith and love, which I have in Christ. So, Timothy, I love Jesus. I have faith. I trust him. And I preach that. So hang on to those words. Listen to it. I think you know, it's important that as we come alongside people in their life, sometimes the most important thing we could do is say nothing because we don't know what to say. And sometimes people ask you, what do I say in such and such a situation? I say, I don't know, but just don't say anything stupid because that's not going to work. But the words we can say to people can have a real impact. And the comfort and just being there with them. And sometimes it's not many words at all. It's just being there. But also, the words we say to people of instruction. When, when people we know, especially those who aren't followers of Christ, and they're going through life, oftentimes the things we say about Jesus or on behalf of Jesus can have a greater impact than we can ever realize. And I mean, I, mean, I, I know that from experience. I mean, this can so he's saying, Timothy, I've said some things. You've heard me. You've got to hold on to those things. Notice what he says. And I love verse 14. Once again, he talks about protecting and trusting. But this time he says, protect through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. There's a lot of speculation what the word treasure is. I think basically in many ways it's the gospel. All it goes with it. Notice what he says this time. Protect. And then he just advances a little bit further. Through the Holy Spirit. I know as, as, as a Baptist, <laughs> we don't talk a lot about the Holy Spirit, and I get that because, you know, over the years, people have gone to extremes. And we Bab Here's what we do as Baptists, and I've learned that in my life and growing up. If another denomination or group does or believes something we don't like, we tend just to avoid everything to do with that. So charismatics go a little, you know, one way of the Holy Spirit, so we never talk about the Holy Spirit. You know, you know, some of the liturgical churches, you know, they, they have some different views about certain things, and we just don't ever deal with that. You know, we don't want to deal with uh, predestination because that's Presbyterian. We don't want to have elders because that's, you know, Presbyterian reform. Some, for some reason, the Presbyterians take us off a lot. We don't want to do anything Presbyterians do. Uh, you know, we, and we just, we just have these mindsets sometimes. Instead of just dealing with what Scripture says and the New Testament says, being honest and upfront about it, we don't deal with that. The Holy Spirit is not complicated, you know. And someone asked, I don't even know who it was that's about the Holy Spirit the other day. And this is what I told them. And, and I do this from time to time. It's real quickly. Just let me, let me in within about two minutes give you the whole doctrine of the Holy Spirit. It's real simple. 
The Holy Spirit does two things in the life of unbelievers. And yes, he works in the life of unbelievers. I've heard people say, well, I grew up being told the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with unbelievers. Then how does the unbeliever become a believer? Duh. They're not going to do it on their own. Here's what he does in the life of the unbeliever. He convicts them of sin and convinces them they need Jesus. Convicts them of sin, convinces them they need Jesus. Then when you're saved, he does two things instantaneously and simultaneously. He comes in and he forgives your sin, cleanses you from sin, and he saves you at the same time. And then after that, he does two more things. He gives you gifts and he gives you guidance. And that, my friend, is what the Holy Spirit does. Now, in that giving of gifts and guidance, one of the things that we have to understand is that the salvation we have is protected by him. He indwells within us. And once the Holy Spirit indwells within us, guiding us, part of that guidance is protecting. That is what he does. And so we need to understand that. And I think, I think sometimes we forget that it's the Holy Spirit that lives within us and indwells within us. I know what I'm going to say sounds odd. Sometimes people get a little antsy when I say this. But Jesus doesn't dwell in us. The Holy Spirit does. I know that because that's what the New Testament teaches. <laughs> the Holy Spirit lives within us. You know, and I, I know, you know there are places that refer to Christ within us and Christ in you and all that. But he's in us through the Holy Spirit. That's how he's in us. And his message is in us. And, you know, and all, I, I understand all the things that talk about that. If someone email me and explain it to me. I got it. I'm just telling you, you need to understand it's through the Holy Spirit. And that's how that works. And so we, we ought to, if, if we can realize more of the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, it would give us strength in dealing with the world in which we find ourselves. And I think it would give us more comfort. So I'm going to say this. And I don't, I'm not trying to go off on a tangent. I don't want to bother people with this, but the Holy Spirit. But I don't want angels watching over me and guiding my life. I want the Holy Spirit. I want, I want God. <laughs> and don't forget, the Holy Spirit is God, okay? I want God doing that. That's my, my preference, you know? If God wants to do it some other way, he can. But I think we get caught up in so many different ideas and concepts that we forget to, that Christianity is a very simple thing. The Holy Spirit is with us, watches over us, and guides us. And I like to know that. So he says in here, all of that is done through the Holy Spirit. This means we're seeking the Holy Spirit to protect us. We're speaking, we seek the Holy Spirit to guide us. We seek the Holy Spirit to move in our life. So I grew up sometimes being told, never pray to the Holy Spirit. And I'm like, well, why would I not pray to the Holy Spirit? He dwells within me. But I remember growing up saying, well, you pray to God, you can pray to Jesus, but you don't really pray to the Holy Spirit. Well, okay, but sometimes I just need the Spirit to work in my life. So I guess what I can pray is, God, if you give a chance, could you tell the Holy Spirit to do this for me? If you get a chance, you can see him anytime soon, God. You know, maybe if Jesus can see him, that'd be fine. So, I mean, I, listen, I, I understand all those things. I'm just trying to tell you in a practical way. There are a lot of times that I say, you know, I, and I pray to Father. You know, I may Father work in my life and all that. But sometimes I just say, Lord, I need the Holy Spirit to work. I need, I need the Holy Spirit to guide me. Spirit, I need you to give me some idea of what in the world's going on. And you probably need to do that too sometimes, don't you? I mean, you just, just need to do that. And it's okay. 
It's not heresy. God's not going to say, well, you prayed to the wrong person. It's just one God. Remember, just remember, remember. There's just one God. There's not three gods. One God. Three persons. Three functionalities. Three ways it relates. But it's still the same God. Sometimes. Kind of forget that. So, then he goes on. You know, then it kind of takes a turn. He says, you're aware of the fact that all who were in Asia have turned away from you. Now, Asia is not what we think of Asia. Asia is Turkey. And he loses a little bit of hyperbole. Remember, a lot of Paul's ministry started in Asia. If you, if you go back to Acts 13, that's where he began. Uh, in Acts 16, you know, he was going to go uh, back to Persia, I mean, to Asia, but the Lord led him to, to Europe. I mean, Ephesus, you know, huge part of Paul's ministry. That's where, that's where Timothy is now. So evidently, when Paul was in prison, or during the time maybe from his first imprisonment, people began to turn against Paul. It's amazing. I've seen this, you know, now 42 and a half years in ministry. I, it, how many times a pastor or somebody, uh, you know, how quickly a church can turn against them. And, I, and sometimes for reason. I'm not saying it's not legitimate. But, I mean, I have a friend of mine, you know, uh, people I know whose ministries are going well. There's a slight hiccup. Maybe the church wasn't doing as well as they should. And all of a sudden, people start coming out and sensing weakness like sharks seeing blood, smelling blood and coming. And how quickly they turn. Paul established a church at Ephesus. He spent three years there. I mean, he, gave it, he wrote Ephesians. He wrote 1 and 2 Timothy, which went there. The letter he wrote to Colossians, the lost letter, letter of Colossians, the lost letter to the Laodiceans, they probably all at some point ended up in Ephesus. I mean, he went by there. He had great love for them on his way to, to Jerusalem. I mean, this was an important place. And, and they, along with others, were turning against him. And so he starts naming some. Oh, I love this part. It's so cool that he does this. Among them are Phagellus and Hermogenes. Can you imagine your notoriety in Scripture is that you were against Paul and he just went ahead and mentioned you? Yeah, I think I'll mention these guys. I don't know if they're in heaven or not, but they're probably like, oh, this is great. All eternity, we're labeled this way. You know, cool. That's just what I want, you know. And so he just, I love it. He just calls them out. He does it later on also in the book. <laughs> Sometimes, if you just read Paul, Paul is pretty brutal. You know that? I mean, in a, in a Christian godly way. Okay. Paul just sometimes just lays it out there. And, and sometimes we just got to be like Paul, man. We just got to call it the way it really is. He's not being mean. He's just saying, these two guys, hey, Timothy, be careful of these guys. We ought to tell them to be careful of. Thanks. When I left, uh, <laughs> it's not quite soon. When I left Bridgeport, and, I, and my associate was going to probably follow me as pastor, I sent him down. It felt like a scene out of Godfather. You know, that, you know, Pataglio's coming after you, and Costanzo's there too. I mean, I just sat down with him and said, "Look, guy, look, Craig, here's the deal. This guy, this guy, this guy, you got to watch him, <laughs> and be careful of this guy over here. And if this guy left the church, if he comes back as soon as I'm gone, he's dead. I mean, I just went by there because I wanted to protect him from what was going to happen." Because I knew what was going to happen. And I had an obligation to do that, to protect the church. And I think sometimes we just need to understand it's okay to be honest about the way things are. It's okay to do that, to protect the church. Now, I don't mean to be a jerk about it. I'm not, I don't go around in staff meetings saying, well, I don't like this person or that person. I served with the pastor. The, honest to goodness, he took a church directory. 
Now, this was staff at Park Hills. And he went through the whole church directory, and he had circled or X'd out the people. The circle the people that were for him and X'd out the people that were against him. He gave it to me. He goes, I'm fixing to ready to go to Laredo, and he says, you need to do this. And he and I were not on good terms anymore for a variety of reasons. Some of it was my fault. Almost all of it was his fault. But that's the way it goes. But um, I looked at him and said, if I, I guess get back to this, if I have to do that, I'm leaving. Why in the world would I want to spend my ministry doing what you just did? So, that, so I'm not talking about that, okay? What I'm saying is sometimes you have to understand that if, if there is problems in church or people are causing difficulty, you've got to deal with it. And I always have, and I've been thankful that I have. It's unpleasant to do, but you have to understand some people are difficult. Now, I'm not looking, none of you that I'm, when I look, said that I looked at you, I wasn't talking about you, Jimmy. I just wasn't. So, uh, y'all. He said, the Lord grant mercy to the household Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chase. That guy, he was probably from Ephesus or in Asia, and he came to Rome to seek out Paul. In fact, that's what he says. When he was in Rome, he eagerly searched me and found me. He said, man, just God have mercy on his family. Some think that he was dead, and that's why God prayed for mercy. I think it's more likely that he was alive but because he was connected with Paul, there was always the danger that he would get sucked into all of that stuff. I think it's natural for someone like Paul to pray for people for protection. You hopefully you do that, don't you? You pray for people that you love, that God protect them. And I do that. I mean, that people I pray for, God protect them, watch over them. Sometimes because I love them, sometimes because I know they're not very bright and they need the help. But either way, we should pray for people we care about. I think that's what Paul was doing. That's a good prayer. You don't have to do that every day. It's still a good prayer. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Can you imagine this? <laughs> we don't know what he did, but I would much rather be Onesiphorus than I would rather, I mean, than I be Phagellus or Hermogenes. I mean, he's, they're both names in the same paragraph. Boy, it's much better to be the one that rendered services and be remembered that way. Do you ever think about how you want to be remembered? Now, I don't think a lot about legacy, but I mean, do you ever think about how do you want people to remember you? Do you want to be that mean, honorary person that nobody really liked, but they just tolerated? Well, you can pat yourself on the back and say, you know, I would told them what I thought, blah, 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 blah. Or do you just want to be the person that people remember, like, man, they just serve, they love people and they serve people. I really did. When I was a young guy in seminary, and uh, I was serving, I think I was pastoring Laredo at the time. No, I was in Park Hills at the time, and uh, I was my master's. And, uh, you know, Park Hills is a pretty good-sized church. I was the associate. And we had an old guy there named Jack. Jack was way past uh, the age. So anyone would go to seminary. He was probably, you know, 50s or 60s. And he was at a really small church out in the middle of the country, nowhere. Man, Jack just loved people. He loved, he, all, he would talk about his church. And we all kind of, because when you're in seminary, now, let me explain. I did not go to uh, Fort Worth uh, for all my seminary. Back then, you could take extension. So all of my master's was out the extension program in San Antonio. So all of it. All the Fort Worth professors came down from Southwestern Seminary, but I got all that way. And, you know, so you kind of get to talk a lot, know the professors. And then you know, everybody knew about Jack and his church because he talked about it all the time in a good way. And then there was another guy who was a pastor there. He was, uh, in his probably mid-30s, early 40s. 
He pastored a decent-sized church in San Antonio, and oh, he was constantly criticizing his people all the time. <laughs> and, you know, and he was a, a church vastly larger than old Jack. And I always thought, man, I'd rather be Jack than, than this other guy. And I remember one time he was doing something, and the professor, Dr. Jimmy Nelson, looked at him, not Jack, he looked at, I think his name was Steve. And he finally had enough, and he said, Steve, this is why all your people hate you. And we were like, wow. Nah, that's pretty good. And, and, and just thinking about that, it's, it's, it's better to be insignificant, maybe, but serve the Lord and then people remember you that way than to think you're important when nobody likes you. It's probably a better deal to be. And on that note, we'll see you later. <laughs>